here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have them introduce themselves and uh, say a couple fun facts about them. But just so you know, every year we try and do this. We had uh, four interns last year. Uh, we have three this year, and uh, they're going to be going through theological training and study and also just being part of everything we kind of do behind the scenes, uh, not just for Sunday, but all midweek as well. So they'll be helping out on a lot of different levels. So anyway, without further ado, introductions. Uh, hello, my name's Christian. Um, I moved up here just for this semester, and I'm originally from Southern California. Why is that an ooh? Other Southern Californians? Yeah? Anyone from Lake Elsinore? Okay. Next. <laughs> Hi, I'm Taylor. I'm from Phoenix, Arizona, and I'm a freshman at NAU. Nice. <laughs> My name is Michelle. I go to NAU. I'm a junior. I'm studying HRM. I'm from Yuma, Arizona. No way. Come on. <laughs> that was like a pity woo. Um, just kidding. If you're from Yuma, God loves you too. Um, I told them before we got up here that we were going to ask them each one question. I told them what three questions we were going to ask, but I didn't tell them which one they were going to receive. Uh, and so they're kind of jumping on uh, some randomness here. But so, Christian, we'll start with you. Um, what is your dream vacation? Um, my dream vacation would be going to Tokyo. Um, I've heard just a lot of, like, people going from Europe and Tokyo and saying that, like, they just had a great time there. Um, you know, the city isn't, like... You go out, it's more of a vertical. So it's like everything is just like walking back and forth and going up and down from place to place. So I think it would just be a really interesting like culture and place to see. Nice. nice. Cool. Yeah. Any, uh, any people from Tokyo he ready. today? He was ready for that answer. Nobody from Tokyo? <laughs> for that question. Okay. <laughs> Taylor, um, we're going to give you the one that was much debated about who would get, but would you choose Batman or Superman and why? Um, personally, I would choose Batman because I've never seen Superman. <laughs> because I've never seen Superman. <laughs> How many team, team Batman? Raise your hand. All right, Team Superman. Oh, wow. Oh, man. Looks like it was more Batman, that's for sure, but Superman has actual powers, so. <laughs> What's her question? You might want to ask her a question. <laughs> It's helpful. <laughs> and uh, Michelle, just talk. Okay, and um, last question. You, you get the, uh, because we are, believe it or not, we do love the Bible in depth here. Um, what is your favorite Bible story and why? Um, Kelly Morris actually sent me um, a sermon on the ultimate story of forgiveness with Joseph and um, his brother selling him into slavery, and it kind of gave me a new perspective on that. So I really like that story right now. All right. Good. Good. Okay, so these are our interns. This is Anthony G. He's preaching today on a very easy topic, uh, <laughs> yeah, which is so. end times. Mm-hmm. And so I asked, him, uh, I asked him to be up here so we can pray for him as well. And we're going to pray for the interns and for their, the next kind of nine months while they invest here. Uh, and then we'll, we'll get into the Word of God. So let's pray for them. All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, God, you call us, every single one of us. If we know you, God, we are ministers of the gospel. We are in ministry. And so, God, I do thank you, though, that these three kind of get to be a part of, of what we're doing behind the scenes. Lord knows we need the help. And, God, I just pray that this would be a formative season in their lives, God, one that draws them closer to Christ, God, that makes them focused more on the gospel than ever before. 
and cause them to move in mission, God, to this world as disciples of Christ. God, would you grow in them uh, just favor with one another and love for one another as they do this together. And God, would they be a service unto this church, but mostly your church in this city and in the world. God, that your name would be made great and that we could celebrate you in everything we do. God, we also pray for Anthony right now. God, would he, uh, would he just well up in the confidence of the Holy Spirit to preach to us a difficult text, God, that helps shape us and reminds us, God, that you're coming and we need to be ready. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thank oh, you. <laughs> Clap for our interns. Thank them. They're going to do a lot of work. All right. Well, like Vince said, my name is Anthony. I'm a pastoral resident here, and I got a couple announcements for us. Man, Vince just littered my stand with, with propaganda. Um, but uh, I got a couple announcements for us. One announcement, uh, we have upcoming on October 18th and 25th, right after church, we'll start at 1 p.m. and it goes till 3 p.m., um, and we provide lunch. We're going to do something we call Redemption Classes, our fall session, and we're going to teach four different topics. And one of the topics is faith, the Bible, and the LGBTQ. Uh, and Vince and I will teach that. There's going to be another class called Prayer as a Lifestyle. Justin and Anna Singleton are going to preach that. How to Study the Scripture or the Bible by Randy and Kelly Morris. And Biblical Finance by Drew Lundgren. If, that, if you're interested in taking any one of those classes, um, you can go to our website and you can sign up through uh, one of the Connect links on there. And just sign up and say, hey, I'd like to go. Um, and then also another announcement is right after service today at about 12.30, we are having a kids' orientation meeting, kids' ministry orientation meeting. And it's going to be at the church offices. And this is for anyone that is currently a volunteer with Kids Church or anyone that is even thinking about or wanting to be a volunteer in our children's ministry. And so that meeting at 12.30 is going to be at our church offices, which is... Next to Aspen Sports over here on San Fran, about a three-minute walk, four-minute walk this way. And we have a door to the left of Aspen Sports, and it says Redemption Church. And just keep following signs until you find it. It's deep in the abyss of this office building. So, um, and if you're down there at like 1225, one of the leaders will come down and, and show you guys where the office is. So if you just go to Aspen Sports, we'll, we'll find you. Um, all right. Well, we're going to get into it today. Um, we are talking about the end times. And so, fun topic, and uh, not that controversial. Uh, and uh, I grew up in the church, okay? And so, I grew up in the church. I grew up very Christianized, all right? Like, everything that a Christian kid was supposed to be doing, my parents forced me to do, okay? So, one of those things was I, I was only allowed to listen to Christian music, okay? I was, I was not allowed to listen to anything but Christian music. So, from 1987 to 2006, the first 18 years of my life, I could only listen to Christian music. So, if you walked up to me and like, hey, name me a song by Green Day, I'd be like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, like, I would have no idea about any of these bands. And it was like I was put into a bunker for 18 years in regards to music. And there was all these kinds of things, a part of Christian culture that, that you grew up doing. So, you know, there was the WWJD bracelet phase for a while. There was, uh, you know, I was for, forced, but I liked it, listening to Adventures of, and of Adventures and Odyssey on the radio. That was all, like, my dad was like, time for bed, listen to the radio. 
and it was these little stories about how I shouldn't lie, or whatever it was. And so I grew up very Christianized, and there was one of, the, one of these things that was very much a part of the, the Christian culture that I took a part in was the Left Behind series, okay? How many of you, just quick raise of hands, how many know, just know a little bit about Left Behind series? Cool. Pretty much everyone. All right, cool. Um, and so the Left Behind series about junior high time is when it was really becoming popular, and so my parents thought it was a good idea to say, hey, sixth grade Anthony, read this. It's about the end times. And so if you don't know about the Left Behind series, it was, the, it was like the Harry Potter of the Christian world, right? It was, so, it was so popular. Everybody was reading it. Everybody was trying to see, oh, what's going to happen at the end of the earth? What's going to happen in these end times? And so I read them, and I think I secretly liked them um, because, well, because secretly, I think I wanted to be left behind, right? Like, I, think, I was like, this is cool. Like, I want to kill the Antichrist. Like, this sounds awesome, right? And so that's why I kept reading them. And I actually, my family, like, stopped reading them, and I kept reading them. They kept going. I think the last one came out in, like, 2006. I read, I read all 12 books. And so I grew up with this Left Behind series being a predominant influence on how Christians viewed the end days, the end times. And, but then, as I got older and I started reading some of these passages in the Bible about the end times, I kind of said, well, I don't know if that matches up quite with Left Behind series. And so I began to realize that Christians had different views on the end times. And so today we are going to talk about the end times because we're going to go through all of Mark chapter 13, which is talking about the end times. And in the academic Christian world, they call the end times eschatology, which just means the study of the last times or the study of the end times. And so today we're going to be talking about eschatology. And here at Redemption, eschatology for us is an open-handed issue. And so to understand what an open-handed issue is, I'm going to explain for us what a closed-handed issue is. So there are issues in Christianity and beliefs that we have in Christianity that are closed-handed for us at Redemption, that if you're here and you're a Christian, that we say, hey, you have to believe these things to be a Christian. And we're going to hold tightly to that. We're not going to let go. We're not going to be open-handed. We're going to be close-handed to that. So an example of that is we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, okay? If you're here and you're not a Christian and you don't believe that, that's okay. But if you're here and you're a Christian, we're going to say, we're going to hold tightly to that, that, that Jesus is the Son of God, okay? So an open-handed for, issue for us is eschatology, right? Is end times, is what you believe about the end times. Because the Bible with eschatology is, in our opinion, an open-handed issue where people can have different beliefs about it and believe where they feel convicted. Because we think that the Bible is sometimes not always clear about this. And, and because many Christians kind of have debates about how it's going to look. And so today, as we approach this text, I'm going to make some claims on my convictions. But again, this is an open-handed issue. And so if you're like, I don't know if that's right, that's okay. And what, I love that we go through books of the Bible here because when we go through books of the Bible, we get to stop, take time, and, and preach on topics and talk about topics that, we, that maybe I normally wouldn't preach on. So I'm going to be honest with you. I would probably never preach on end times because it confuses me. And so 
This is a great moment for us because especially in regards to the end times, we kind of have two reactions. And, and we see this with different doctrines in the Bible too. But with the end times, we see that pe- there's a lot of people that are kind of more like me who stand over here and go, man, that's confusing. I don't know. I've met some kind of crazy people that talk about the end times. I'm just going to be like, yeah, there's end times. That's, that's nice. Okay. And then, and then there's people over here that are kind of like really obsessed with end times and they're omega coding the Bible and trying to figure out who the anti Christ is, and they're trying to figure every last thing out in the Bible, and, they're, and, and we know who they are, and they're very, very obsessed with the end times. Now, what I hope today's text does for us is it brings us here to the middle where we're not just like, hey, I don't care about this doctrine because w- some crazy people care about it, and we go, man, it's important. God's saying something to us, and that we're not over there where we're just trying to omega code the Bible and, and figure out what exactly how things are going to go down. So uh, that's why I like that we go through books of the Bible. So we're going to talk about eschatology today. If you need a Bible, can you raise your hand? Raise them high. If anyone needs a Bible, and some of our interns are going to come pass them out, raise them high. I know it's awkward. They're going to bring you down a Bible. And we're going to be in Mark 13, so everybody can turn to uh, Mark 13 today. So again, it is okay if we disagree today. I'm going to be preaching on my convictions about it. And I honestly could be wrong. And honestly, what's funny is, too, as I uh, have been preparing for this the last month or two, uh, I, I find that even I even have another heart issue is where when someone has a different end times view than me, I want to convince them of mine. And I, I like feel almost a little bit frustrated, angry that they don't have the same view as me. And I realize that is something wrong in my heart, too. And so hopefully as we get into this today, God takes that stuff away from all of our hearts. So... 13, verse 1 and 2, let's, let's get into it. It says, And as he came out of the temple, he being Jesus, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Okay, stop there. So, Jesus, to give a little recap, the last few weeks, Jesus has had many conflicts with the religious leaders. He's had conflicts with every part of of the religious leadership, which they call the Sanhedrin, and there was three parts. First, he had some conflict with the Pharisees, who asked him about some taxes, and as Vince told us, Jesus dropped the mic on them and walked away, right? And so he opposes them to their face, essentially. Then he rolls up on the Sadducees, those sad guys you see, right? Vince's great joke um, that uh, I taught him. And uh, <laughs> that someone else taught me. And so uh, they, they rolled up on Jesus and had this crazy scenario that sounded like, uh, I don't know, teenagers asking how far they can go. And, and Jesus dropped the mic on them and said, you don't even know God or Scripture. And then... He rolled up on the scribes, and the scribes were actually, like, one of the scribes actually kind of asked him a good question, but Jesus said, no, I'm still going to drop the mic on you guys, too. And he said, and he kind of opposed their way of thinking. And so the disciples have rolled through with Jesus on these things, and he, they've been like, okay, okay, Pharisees, okay, I get that. Well, Sadducees, too, you're going to get on the Sadducees? And then, and then the scribes, come on, that guy was being nice to you, Jesus. And so I think... That the, that the disciples are starting to get a little bit worried. And so as they're leaving the temple, this place that those three groups called the Sanhedrin ran and controlled and, and did all their thing in, I think as they were leaving the temple and the, and the disciples saw that Jesus opposed all three groups, 
I think one of them got a little worried. We'll call him Judas. Uh, just kidding. He could be any one of the disciples. And so one of the disciples got a little worried because I think he loved the temple and he loved what God's people had, and for, for, had built for God's house. And so he, he, he was putting the pieces together, I think, saying, man, Jesus has just opposed the Sanhedrin. Well, let's see what he thinks about the temple. And so one of the disciples says, uh, Jesus, like, don't you think this is so beautiful? Like, can't, right? <laughs> Please. And Jesus, of course, classic Jesus, never answers the question the way we want him to. And he goes, oh, yeah? Well, you think it's beautiful? This is going to be destroyed. Too bad. Shouldn't have asked. It's gone. Right? Just gone. And this, this, was, like, this was a shocking statement for the, the Israelites because this was the second temple they built. Many of their, their, old, their Bible, the Torah, the Old Testament, spoke about this temple and spoke of how it was the place where God resided and different things. And, and so Jesus comes along who's been who is all about God, all about God's kingdom. And so the disciples are freaking out, and he's like, yeah, you know that thing that kind of even physically represents God's kingdom? Gone. Deal with it. And because what we see even here in this text that Jesus is trying to convince his disciples of what we've seen him try to convince them all along is that he's doing a new thing. Okay, and so when he says the temple is going to be destroyed, he's trying to tell the disciples, listen, I'm doing a new thing. It's so new that this, this hallmark, this beacon of representation of what we believe is going to be destroyed because that's how new of a thing I'm doing. And so Jesus uh, talks a bit more about this destruction in the upcoming verses. So let's go to verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Okay, so the disciples probably got pretty freaked out by Jesus' answer. And Jesus intentionally takes them to the Mount of Olives, and he sits down with them, and they say, Jesus, what, what, can you tell us when this is going down? Like, how is this going to look? And I said the word intentionally there because the Mount of Olives was a significant place for the people of Israel. See, the, the Old Testament speaks about, the, it has this robust theology around this phrase called the day of the Lord. Okay, and you see it even in the New Testament. But throughout the Old Testament, there's this day of the Lord that the prophets would reference to, and it would be this day that God was going to come back, and he was going to judge his people. Okay, and Zechariah 14 uh, talks about this day of the Lord, and it says that in that day of the Lord, God is going to come back, and he's going to judge all the nations. And so they knew that, but why the Mount of Olives was significant was because in Zechariah 4, where it's also talking about the day of the Lord, the last day, the return of God, it says that God, when he comes back, he's going to lay his foot on the Mount of Olives, and he's going to split it in two. So listen, Jesus knew he was going to talk to the, to the disciples about these end times, about the day of the Lord. And so he was very intentional to go to the Mount of Olives and sit on top and put his literal feet on the Mount of Olives. And I, I just think that's a great background for us as we get into this, that I think that Jesus is saying, you know, as God will come one day, here is where, here is where I am God. 
And so often you'll hear this whole chapter of Mark and the other places it is in the other Gospels called the Olivier Discourse because it's on the Mount of Olives. And since you're academic, you have to have a silent T. Um, so let's keep going. And so the disciples are like, Jesus, what are, what are going to be the signs of the temple falling? And he picks up in verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors, rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. And so Jesus starts to list out these, these literal things that are going to happen to the disciples before the temple falls. Right? He says, uh, there's going to be people that come and lead you astray. And we see this. Throughout the New Testament, we see that there was a lot of people that seemed to be anti to the gospel or claiming to be the, the Messiah. And even if you look at the historian Josephus, who is not a Christian, he recorded some instances of, of men coming and saying, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah after Jesus had already resurrected. So we see that that happened. We see that there's wars and rumors of wars that's always happening with Rome and, and Israel back then and, and the different places surrounding Rome and Israel. And and, and Jesus, though, says, even though those things are going to happen, the end is not yet. The end is not yet. Okay? And he goes on, and, and he, he describes, and I think that's a kind of a transition phrase for us, where he's going to start to talk beyond just the fall of the temple and the destruction of the temple. And so in verse 8, he says this. Here's some other things. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to the councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel, gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever, whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And, the, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved." Okay, so there's a lot of stuff. So Jesus begins to talk about the destruction of the temple as the beginning of these end times. And then he begins to talk about all these things, uh, other things that happen that we even see today in other countries. And so today, what, we're gonna, what I want to do is kind of give us a, a correct view of each of these passages. Okay, a correct view of kind of God's timeline. Okay, uh, you don't, I, I have a timeline, but you don't have to put it up yet, uh, Sarah. But, and so God's timeline is, is often re- referred to as the history of salvation or God's redemptive history. And the idea is how is God going to redeem the earth? And how did God create the earth and create all of history? And so in God's timeline, what we see is at the beginning is creation— that's the, the beginning of God's timeline. And then right after that, we see the fall. That's where Adam and Eve sinned. They messed up and all that stuff. And then we kind of see the people of Israel uh, live life with God. And they live up until redemption, which is where Jesus comes and he dies on the cross and for our sins that we can be saved. So Jesus has redeemed all things. But then Jesus left. 
and, and, and not quite everything has been redeemed. And so over here at the end of God's timeline is something we call restoration. And that's when Jesus comes back. That's the day of the Lord. That's when God comes back and he restores and redeems all things. And so you can bring up the, the timeline right now. Me and Vince, we went straight left behind and made a timeline um, to help us understand where in, in God's history is uh, these passages that we're going to go through. And so in this first passage, Mark 1 through 13, the first seven verses, it really seems to be talking about the destruction of the temple. I even have a laser pointer straight to 1995, all right? And so what Right here is the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., all right? And this is 30, around 33 A.D. when Christ died, and represented by the cross. And so what we believe after Jesus left, this time between redemption and restoration, uh, that's called the church age, okay? And so I have that up there is the church age. So until Jesus returns, it's the church age. That means that, that God is moving and working through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit until he returns. And so that's the church age. And so in one sense, ever since Jesus left, in one sense, it has been the end times. Now, they've lasted 2,000 years, and they might last 2,000 more years. They might last one more minute. They might last four million more years. But in one sense, we've been living in, in the end times in, in the way that God has done things for, for the last 2,000 years, and we'll continue to do so through the rest of my sermon. And so what we see at the start of the church age was really Jesus ushering in redemption. So redemption would be kind of like right here, laser pointer style. And then right near the beginning of the church age, we see some of the things that Jesus predicted happening. We see that the temple is actually destroyed. There is no original Jewish temple anymore. And so now we've come to this point in the passage, I think, eight, verses 8 through 13, kind of describe up until today and up until some other things we'll talk about. And so we put a redemption R as like, that's us here right now. Okay, and so we're in the church age. We don't know how long it will be or how long it will last. And so we see these other descriptors in Mark 8 through 13. It says a bunch of things. It says that Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. There will be birth pains. We're going to be delivered over to councils, beaten in synagogues, stand before governors slash kings, and we're going to bear witness. We're going to bring the gospel to all nations. We're going to be on trial. Families are going to deliver each other over. Um, and, and everyone's going to be hated because they're a Christian. And I think as soon as the church left, we saw a lot of that right away. We saw a ton of that right away. There's tons of stories in Acts where Paul or Peter or whomever is thrown before some governor, some king, or somebody, and, and they just stand firm on the gospel. But you might be going, Anthony, that doesn't really happen to more, anymore. I think the reason it, it doesn't happen anymore is, one, we live in America, and two, it is happening in other parts of the world. There's other countries that if you go in and if you proclaim the name of Jesus, you will be beaten. There's other countries where if you go and you proclaim the name of Jesus, you will be killed. And, and I, I assume that other countries, when they read this part of the Bible, I think they feel some comfort and they go, man, we're living in the end times today, even though it is 2,000 years ago. And, and just kind of a little nugget. Some of you might be going, oh, I've never experienced that. I don't know if this is the end times. I want to challenge you with, are you sharing the gospel? 
Like, are you really in all of your life, are you finding opportunities and, and making opportunities even to just share the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done? And I guarantee even here in America, if you begin to share the gospel in all aspects of your life, you're going to see some of these things. You're going to see some of these things happening. You're, you know, in college, I knew a girl who her family was Hindu and she became a Christian, and then she had to go back to her family and tell them, man, I'm a Christian now. I'm not Hindu anymore. And it was so difficult for her. I remember talking with her about just a lot of the interactions she was having with her dad. And I imagine she was reading this text and seeing the, the strife between the family members and going, I can relate to that. I can relate to that. And so we've seen a lot of this stuff. And so as we go through this text and as we see more things, realize that we're, we, are, we right now are in the church age, which in one sense is the end times because it's the last times of history before God returns. So let's move on to ver- the next few verses where things start to get more controversial. I'm going to just read verse 14. Read with me. But when you see... The abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, we're going to stop there. So this term, abomination of desolation, there's a lot of different beliefs about it. But I'll tell you what the Jewish people and what the disciples believed about it right then. You see, this phrase had been used before. This phrase, abomination of desolation, had been used uh, a a couple hundred years before about where there was this emperor named Antiochus who rolled into Jerusalem, and he did not like the Jewish people, so he went into their temple, and he built an altar to Zeus, who was not their god, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar uh, because he knew pigs were considered unclean to the Jewish people. And so he was just like, I don't like you guys, and I'm going to do everything to show you I don't. And this guy was referred to as the abomination of desolation. And what happened, actually, and we see this in in the historical book Maccabees, where Maccabee goes, he says, well, that's it. You went a little too far with the pig, buddy. And he rises up, and it's it's the only time since 1948 where Israel had... Uh, their independence because they rose up and they revolted and they kicked Antiochus out of there. And so when Jesus says abomination of desolation, this is the guy that comes to their mind right away. They're like, this guy that went to our temple and tried to take over and resurrect an altar to a different God and uh, sacrificed a pig who who causes us to be unclean, that that is unfit for our God. And so this imagery is brought up. But then as Mark goes on, he, he even says, let the reader understand. And I think that the disciples knew that, that this abomination of desolation wasn't Antiochus. wasn't the guy that about 150 or 200 years before that, that did this horrible thing in Israel. And so there's been actually a, a, a few different ideas of who is this abomination of desolation that, that Jesus is talking about. One of the ideas is that Caligula, who was an emperor around uh, the time of, of the book of Mark, and what he did was he went into the temple and he resurrected statutes of him standing in the temple. And he was like, praise me. And so some people think it's him because of the, that word standing used there, standing where he ought not to be. 
Some people think it's Titus who came in 70 AD and he was the emperor of Rome and he went right into the temple and then he destroyed it. Some think it's uh, Titus because he literally went into the temple and he literally destroyed it. And, and so some think it's that. And then some connect uh, this abomination of desolation to the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist, which is talked about further in the Bible, especially in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And, and that's where I land. I think that this verse, that, that Jesus is, when he says the abomination of desolation, he's referring to the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness. And let me say before I keep going, I don't know exactly, I, I don't know who that is. I don't know what that's exactly going to look like. We just know what's right here in Scripture. And so I think, the reason I think this is because the way the man of lawlessness is described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, is very similar to the way that, uh, and the environment that's described here in the rest of this passage. So I'm just going to read this passage, and then I'll, I'll tell you how they kind of connect. Um, verse 15. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God has created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would, not, would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. So it describes these great and terrible things, this rebellion towards God's people and this great tribulation. And Second Thessalonians, just save us time. We're not, we're not going to go there, but I encourage you to go there later. In 2 Thessalonians, it talks about um, um, this man of lawlessness who's going to perform false signs and wonders, who's going to take an authority that's not truly his but God's. And that kind of coincides with standing where he ought not to be. It describes a rebellion against God, and I think what greater rebellion could there be than trying to kill all of God's people as we see in Mark 13. And then in, in 2 Thessalonians, we see that Jesus comes and he is what stops the man of lawlessness and stops him from doing what he's been doing. And that's what we see in Mark 13, that when Jesus returns, that's what stops this great tribulation, this, this age of pain and suffering that the man of lawlessness or the abomination of desolation ushers in. So you can throw up my timeline again, and we'll kind of talk about it a little bit more. Um, and so what we've, we've, what we've had so far is, uh, you could go ahead and throw up that timeline. Um, what we've had so far in redemptive history, right? Creation, fall, redemption with Jesus on the cross, and then ushered in the church age. And so, so far we've had the destruction of the temple. We've had us living through the church age. And then we put a picture of Kirk Cameron to represent uh, the, the abomination of desolation. And the Great Tribulation, all right? Kirk Cameron was the first uh, uh, buck from the Left Behind series in the movie. So that's how much I read it. I remember the character's name. Um, and so Kirk Cameron here represents, he's not the Antichrist, but he represents the Great Tribulation. 
And we think near the beginning of the Great Tribulation, we don't know when that is, there will be some kind of guy that rises up to power in some way. We might not know it. We might not know exactly who it is, or it might be like exactly kind of how Left Behind said, where it's like some guy that takes over the world in some way, and everybody's all about it. So we think that ushers in the Great Tribulation, where it, there's a time where Christians are persecuted and killed in, in what Jesus says in ways they've never been before, and in the, mo- in the most terrible ways possible. And the reason I think that Mark 13 is talking about a future event is because Jesus hasn't returned yet. And because uh, we have faced, and, and different Christians in different parts of the world have faced pretty great um, tribulations and trials and persecutions, but I don't think it's as bad as this great tribulation which uh, Jesus describes in Mark 13. Okay, and so I hope that timeline's helpful. And again, we don't know when it is. We don't know when uh, the Antichrist is going to rise, and we don't even really know what that will look like. We just know that there's something there that represents someone standing where they ought not to be and ushering in a rebellion towards God's people, okay? And this, so, like, so this part of the passage is pretty depressing. You read it like, man, am I going to be alive for that? And there's a lot of debate amongst Christians about that. And it, it sounds depressing until you read the next passage in verse 24, And it says this in verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he'll send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and the ends of heaven. Okay, and so Jesus comes back and he stops this great tribulation because he loves us. And that's, that's the day of the Lord. That's the last event in, in God's redemptive history. And then we live in eternity with him. So if you want to bring up that, uh, the timeline, uh, probably just one last time here. That is the last event that I think verses 24 through 27 describe. So right here is the eternity verses 24 through 27 when Jesus returns and he stops this great tribulation from happening. Okay, and it says that he comes, and it sounds like he just shuts out all the lights. He turns off the stars, the moon, and the sun, and then he comes back. And some people think, oh, this could mean this or that or this. And, uh, like it could be that Jesus stops all the powers of the world, all the governments, all this. Um, but some think it's literal. I've, I fall in the literal, literal camp. I think Jesus shuts off the lights because other places in the Bible says that in the end of time, God's glory is what's going to be light for us, that we won't need the sun, stars, moon anymore. And so I think Jesus shuts them off because he's about to become the light for us. Could be totally wrong about that, though. And so uh, that wraps up redemptive history, God returning and God's restoration. So we go into this next text, this next passage, and Jesus, I think, begins to reference back to answer the disciples' original question. There's this phrase in the first passage and in this next passage, these things, that seems to connect the two. And so the next passage is often debated because Jesus uses this word generation in there, and they're like, what does that generation mean? And I think it means a literal generation. So I think that this next passage, Jesus is kind of going back, summing up what he's been talking about with them, and he's talking again about the fall and destruction of the temple in this next passage. It's, it's kind of like when someone, you ask someone a question, and they just have so much knowledge, and they say all this stuff, and then they go, well, anyways, to answer your question, here's da-da-da-da. I think Jesus is anyways to answering our, our question right now. So 
Verse 28 says this. It says, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts on its leaves, you know summer is near. So also, we, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So Jesus, he says, look at the fig tree. And the fig tree was, uh, it's, it always budded right before summer began. And so they used it as kind of like a seasonal marker for them. And so he says, watch for that. And I think he's connecting it to the first passage because of that phrase, these things right there. And, and to, to answer their original question, because they were like, when is the temple going to fall? And so he's telling them, for whatever reason, he wants the disciples to know to, to, to be on watch and be alert for when that happens. And so when he says generation there, he says this generation will not pass away. I think Jesus is saying a literal generation. I think he means that you guys will live old enough and your generation will be old enough to see the temple fall, um, if that makes sense. And there's actually like four or five different views on this. In every single view, I read and I go, oh, it could be that. Oh, it could be that too. Oh, it could be that. And I landed here because a, a lot of the commentaries and a lot of uh, people I respect who read the Bible and know it well, they, many, most of them land here and say, Jesus is talking about a literal generation right here. So that's why I landed there. So now this last passage kind of gives us uh, our application from all this. So to sum up, to you can throw up the timeline if you want. Sorry, I lied. Uh, we get creation, fall, redemption through Jesus, dying on the cross. This time in between redemption and restoration, uh, which is the church age, which is the end times because Jesus is gone. And it's the last times before Jesus returns. And then restoration when Jesus comes back. And so, listen, on my timeline there, I don't see the rapture, okay? I don't see... Uh, a lot of things, the millennium, I don't see a lot of things that Revelation talks about because Mark 13 doesn't talk about it. And that's a different conversation for a different day. And so don't, if there's stuff you're like, Anthony, you didn't mention this or this or that. Yeah, because I don't want to. And <laughs> we definitely don't have the time. And so that's just kind of a very, what we think, vague timeline of, of what we think is going to happen. And so let's read this next passage and see what does Jesus leave us with after saying all this crazy stuff. So, verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So here, what, what should we take away from all this? First thing right off the bat, no one knows the day or the hour. Right off the bat. So we got a lot of ministries. We even got denominations in Christianity that said, hey, I've predicted this. I've predicted when Jesus is going to return. And, G and that's a direct contradiction to Jesus going, no one knows when. And Jesus earlier, you notice him saying, hey, I hope the great tribulation doesn't happen in winter like he didn't know when it is. Because he doesn't know when it is. 
Because it says in this verse right here, he says, not even the son knows. Not even the son, S-O-N, knows when this is going to happen. And you go, oh, how can Jesus be God then? Because Jesus limits himself. Jesus constantly limits himself to save us, right? And so this is just another way that Jesus has limited himself, right? Jesus first, when he came to earth as God, right? If I'm God, I'm coming as a dragon, right? I'm coming as something, like, seriously. Like, I'm coming as something powerful with superpowers. He comes as, guess what, an infant, okay? Have you ever held an infant? You drop it. It gets hurt really bad. It's very fragile. Like, I've never dropped an infant, but I'm just, I just, I've heard if you drop it, it's not good. And so that's how Jesus comes. He limits himself, even though he's God, even though he's this. And he has to learn language. He has to learn how to speak to his parents. He has to clean up his room. He limits himself, even though he's God of the universe. And he even limits himself even more because while he's hanging out with all us knuckleheads who, who sin all the time, he lives perfectly. And he even says in Hebrews that he was tempted just like we were, but he withstood it. That's crazy to me. So God limits himself so much that he allowed Satan to tempt him. And we see that in Mark. And so Jesus even limits himself in that way. And then Jesus limits himself in the ultimate way possible where he says, I'm going to die on the cross for your sins. And that, how limiting is that for God? God cannot be killed. God cannot be killed. But Jesus, because he loves us, he shows God can be killed. If he wants to be killed, he can be killed to save you. And so Jesus limited himself in that way. The good news is he resurrected. His resurrection showed that he's God, showed that he has power. And I think even shows that one day he's going to come back and he's going to restore all things. That he won't, he isn't as limited as we think he is. But he constantly, Jesus constantly limits himself to save us and to love us. And so for whatever reason, he limits himself even in the knowledge of his return. That's beautiful. And so that's one thing we need to take away is that that Jesus limits himself, that he's saying that no one knows the day or hour, not even him. And then this next phrase we see throughout the text, it says, be on guard, stay awake. Be on guard, stay awake. Now Jesus, after talking about all this crazy stuff, or it sounds crazy to us, he says, he doesn't say, hey, get ready for the Antichrist, right? He doesn't say, hey, get, a, get your sniper abilities ready to take out the Antichrist, right? He doesn't say, hey, try to predict who the Antichrist is going to be. He says, stay awake. And then he likens it to a master or, or someone that has uh, employees going away and saying, still work, right? Like, it, like it, none of us would go to our workplaces And if our manager, who is much more capable of doing things, um, left, right before he left, said, Anthony, hey, make sure, let's say I work at McDonald's, make sure you fry the fries, make sure you flip the patties, make sure you, I don't know, say hi to Ronald McDonald, right? (laughs) He leaves. I'm not going to wait up for someone, like a customer come in, and I'm be like, hey, my manager's not here. I don't know if I can flip the patties. I don't know if I'm going to do that, because manager does it a lot better than me, right? I'm not going to do those things. And in the same way, we are supposed to look at God's mission like that. Because sometimes with end time stuff, we see, okay, well, Jesus is going to come wrap this thing up eventually. I'll just wait it out, right? I'll just wait this thing out. I'm just waiting for my escape pod. But Jesus instead says, no, don't do that. Stay awake. 
be ready, live on mission. He's given us a mission, which is to, to simply to, to make disciples of him, make disciples of God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he wants us to be awake, even though he is going to return at some point, even though that's going to happen at some point. I've been, when Vince asked me to do this text, uh, originally it was going to be two weeks long, but then we thought Jesus might return in between the weeks. So we decided to just do one week. And I had actually been reading Revelation at the time, because I was just reading through the New Testament, and I was reading Revelation uh, at the time. And so I, had, I was like, oh, perfect. Uh, and when I was reading Revelation, you know, it's crazy. It's, it's even scary at some points. But the biggest thing that I took away while I was reading through Revelation, even while I was studying a lot of this stuff, was, man, I want to disciple people so well that if this stuff goes down in Revelation like this, that they would be able to find their joy in Christ more than anything else. Like, I want to stay awake enough that whenever this happens, that, that I would be able to, to uh, disciple people that no matter whatever kind of persecution, no matter what kind of tribulation happens, that they would be able to go, man, Jesus is returning. Jesus is coming back. I can stand firm on him. I can stand firm in his promise. I can trust in all of those things he did for me, all those ways he limited himself to love me. And so I think when Jesus is saying stay awake, I think that's the conviction he's given us, is to say, man, let's become a people that, that understand that Jesus is far more solid and far bigger than any suffering we can feel. Let's become a people that that we cause each other and we spur each other on towards loving Christ so much that any one of us in this room could face the worst thing ever and still go, but I have Jesus, but I still have Jesus. I still have Jesus. I'm firm on my foundation of Christ. And so we don't, we don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know the day or the hour. And you might say, oh, well, what about all these signs he said that are going to happen? I think what, the way I say, see it is may, maybe it's possible that those things have happened. Not likely, but it's possible. And so Jesus could come at any moment. And we need to stay awake. We need to realize that he is far greater than even what he describes as the worst tribulation ever. Let's become a church that finds our joy solely and completely in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you. For your word. God, I'll be honest, it's confusing in this passage. It's confusing in this chapter, and especially it's confusing when you line it up next to a lot of the other texts that talk about uh, these end times, this eschatology. God, I hope you gave us a base level eschatology today. But help us not to go away from here trying to just figure out all these things and who the Antichrist is going to be or how exactly it's going to go down. But help us to stay awake. Help us to see that you said, hey, still be my servants, still be my workers, even though I'm going to return soon. And so, God, we don't know how long that's going to be. Give us comfort here and now. God, make us people that, that do stay awake. Make us people that do... Uh, not fall asleep. Do not take time to, to get lazy in your mission for us. And so God, help us um, to, to know you and love you so much that, any, that we all in here could go through the great tribulation 
but we'd still find our security and hope in you. God, we love you and we need you. Amen. Okay, so now we're going to